Hello, listeners. We are here today with David Landau, who has a new book coming out about Cuba, more specifically about a Cuban family, the Rivero family. Why did you choose to write about this family and what is so important about this family? Actually, the book or the choice came to me. I met the elder brother, Amy Rivero, in Washington, D.C., now a long time ago. It's 31 years. Mm. This is not the kind of person you meet in Washington, D.C. He really was like somebody who had stepped from a European novel, or more precisely, a novel of Dostoevsky. And he, he came from another time and place. It was a kind of soiree in Washington where there were all these cool intellectual and writer types and a little bit bohemian. And in walks this older gentleman in a suit and tie and uh, with a completely different attitude and a very pronounced presentation. It, when he walked into a room, you, you really could not ignore him. And that, that was part of his charm. I became acquainted with him. And finally, I decided to invite him to become a boarder in my house. I was living by myself in a rather large house. And he was looking for a living situation. He, he was not renting his own apartment. And I invited him to, to live with me. So in a sense, his entire life history came with him. And he is an extrovert. He presented things that were very dramatic. He talked about his past, of course. And his entire history, which included the, the entire history of the Cuban Revolution, was was in my house with him. <laughs> exactly, in your, in your living room, basically. In my living room. So that was, that was the crucial thing. The book, in a way, chose me. Basically, the history is that the, the older brother, Amy, and the younger, Adolfo, had both fought against the Batista regime in the 1950s, which put the two of them on the side of the group that came to power, which was Fidel Castro's 26th of July. And the younger brother, Adolfo, at that time was a, a convinced communist, a really classic hardliner, Marxist-Leninist communist. And the communists were crucial in, in Castro's takeover. The older brother was more of a libertarian. He was like an operatic personality. The one to whom I compare him in the book is the, the hero, the romantic hero of the opera Tosca. This is Mario Cavaradossi, the mm. great character in opera. And he was, he was like, Amy was like Cavaradossi. Cavaradossi is really an artist. But the, the artist becomes a political activist. That's, that's Cavaradossi's story. He's, he's reacting against the Napoleonic tyranny which actually is in Italy at the time, early 19th century. In this way, Amy Rivero is, he is really a sort of artistic personality. He's a great, among other things, he's a great writer. 
He's a hedonist. He celebrates art. And maybe politics is not his typical home ground. Mm-hmm. But, but, he, but he becomes, he, he, takes, he takes what's in front of him. As a 24-year-old, when he saw the, the coup by which Batista came to power, Batista overthrew a constitutional president of, uh, of Cuba. Uh, Batista and others, that's an important thing, but, you know, not directly relevant to this. And he takes over the government and he becomes a dictator. And young Amy Rivero says, this is a banana republic. You are turning this great country into a banana republic. That's that's his message about Batista. So Amy fights against Batista as a kind of free man, you know, a free spirit. The younger brother is a different matter. He becomes a communist. Communists, as we know, are not, are not really free spirits. They espouse an ideology. They work in cells. They, they are regimented. They're like an army. And nonetheless, the people who are in that movement feel liberated. It does liberate them to be, to be a communist in some way. That is undeniable. So Adolfo fights against Batista in his way. Amy fights against Batista in his. And then Fidel Castro comes to power. And the younger brother says, okay, this is great. The communists have what I call a, a leader principle. They follow the leader. Castro is, Castro actually is not a communist. He's not. He's, he's nothing but an opportunist. He, people identify him with one political tendency or another. Oh, he's a communist. Richard Nixon said Fidel is probably a communist. No, he wasn't. He would have used, Castro would have used anything to come to power. He would have used Catholicism <laughs> if that had been, you know, he, he would have used Buddhism, Zionism, Mussolini fascism. Give me anything, anything I can use to get power. And, and he's tremendously clever and energetic. So Castro wins. He wins. He's the obvious winner in Cuba. So this is a book about the history of the Cuban revolution told through the eyes of the Rivero family, or is this something else? No, you got it perfect. This is, this is the history of the, of the revolution through the experiences of a family. There's an interesting difference about this book, whereas most history books are, as a former history teacher of mine said, you take you take 99 books about history and you make a hundred. <laughs> so that's, that's called secondary history. You write history from written sources. This, this is not that. This is primary history. These are almost everything in the book comes directly from the people who lived the thing or, uh, or were eyewitnesses to, to something else. So, in the book, the way the book is structured, the, the brothers are, are actually telling their own story. Now, these anecdotes or these pieces that I use in the book, really the building blocks of the book, come from segments of writing, just, you know, little stories or anecdotes or episodes, and some of them are quite long, that the brothers, both of them, wrote. Or... I use letters. I, I had a lot of letters from all the family members to each other. And by the way, 
it's all in Spanish and the, the Spanish is, you know, I, I translated the Spanish. So yes, this is an intimate family history, but it also concerns huge historical events. That combination was, was really fascinating. Okay, but as you mentioned, there are tons of books about Cuban history, Fidel Castro, and Cuban exiles. But what is special about this book and why did you decide to tell this story and not something something else? The story of these brothers is fascinating because it avoids the view of Cuba that comes out here is utterly unlike anything else I myself had seen, which is why I was drawn to this material. I grew up in a very specific environment. I mean, the kind of stories that I read about Cuba were the ones that were published in the New York Times, in the ones that were available in Ivy League universities. I'm, I'm a, a, a product of the Ivy League. And it's kind of American, what's now called liberalism, I suppose. I don't know, that, that word is uh, very fraught with things. But there was a distinct point of view about Cuba, which is present really in most of these histories. And it's even present in the histories that are written against the typical histories. Hmm. But the characteristic view of Cuba for American intellectuals is that Fidel Castro was kind of like a Robin Hood character. The New York Times actually called Fidel Castro, a Robin Hood. And in a, in a perverse way, that's completely accurate because Robin Hood is a pure myth. Robin Hood, as far as we know, did not exist. There is no historical character who conforms to the attributes of Robin Hood. It's a mythology that began in England in the 13th or 14th century and is still very much alive today. So The New York Times was, was a great promoter of Castro and is, continues to this day to promote the Castro regime and its accomplishments and its very alleged, uh, alleged accomplishments and is very reluctant to say anything against Castro. So I frequently talk about contrasting my view of the Cuban Revolution and the Castro regime with that of the New York Times. Because the New York Times epitomizes the typical view of the of the American intellectual. And Castro was a progressive and he uh, liberated the Cuban people and he made things fair in Cuba and he distributed health and education and other benefits to the Cuban people. And yes, it's kind of unfortunate. P people actually talk this way. They say, Well, it's too bad that, that free speech and free expression and other kinds of freedoms were not available to the Cuban people. <laughs> That's how they say it. As, as though, as though some deity had, had chosen to, to remove those options from the lives of, of Cubans. No, it's Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro is, was <laughs> a totalitarian ruler. And Americans don't really have a good sense of totalitarianism. Why? Because they live the opposite. They live, they live free. And they might not think that they live free, but they live free. We know there are problems in freedom, 
but they have freedom. They have freedom. The Cuban people have not had a free general election since 1948. That was the last time that a national election with competitors, political competitors running against each other took place. Over 70 years. 72 years. Of course, Cubans have elections today and they have a multiplicity of candidates, but every one of those candidates is, is a communist and approved by the Communist Party. Of course. This is your second book on Cuba, but you probably must get this question a lot. Why are you writing about Cuba? Are you a Cuban? Do you have Cuban uh, relatives? Have you been to Cuba? Why is that a topic so dear to you? I think it's a crucial thing. Firstly, I've seen ever since my undergraduate days and my days as a student leftist, which I was, I have seen how important Cuba is. Cuba is totemic, not only to people on the left, but to many Americans. The New York Times, for example, it's the example I keep using, cannot stay away from Cuba. They are crazy, crazy about Cuba. I also, in my way, am, am crazy about Cuba. It's a, it's a fantastic history, and it's a misunderstood history. I would say it's a silenced history or maybe a hidden history. Things that went on there, and I do make this claim for my book. I say this book is a key to the history of Cuba and allows other people to understand what has really gone on there, including Cubans themselves who don't really know this history. The part of the history that I especially love today is something that is still unknown, and it's even unknown in Cuban Miami, where this particular history has really been ignored. And I'm talking about the history of the first human rights movement in Cuba, which was founded by a gentleman called Ricardo Bofil. And that's a name that nobody knows. It's quite amazing. And I knew Bofil very well because he moved to Miami in the late 1980s and he was a close friend of, and colleague and comrade of the younger brother, Adolfo Rivero. Adolfo Rivero and Bofil co-created the Cuban human rights movement along with two other gentlemen. And all of this is treated in my book. It's, it really comprises the last quarter or fifth of my book. It's all about the human rights struggle. They were completely disempowered by the regime. They had no realistic way of facing up to Fidel Castro and his formidable police apparatus and they deliberately operated with, as Bofil said, no program, no ideology, and no strategy. The principle, which is a very American principle, at the heart of their work was, we are not going to take crap from lousy rulers. You look through history, and you're going to find that everywhere. And... This is how they operated. They were completely spontaneous. 
They did lots of things. They were very flexible and they actually beat Fidel. Bofield said, you can't beat Fidel in politics. Fidel is a genius in politics. You have to beat him some other way. And Bofield and Adolfo and these two other guys, Enrique Hernandez, Elizardo Sanchez, those four who really started this movement, they beat Fidel to the extent that he simply threw them out of the island. And this was at a time when Fidel was not letting so-called dissidents or political opponents leave Cuba because Fidel did not want their stories to go around the rest of the world. But Bofil was chucked out. Adolfo was chucked out. Uh, Elizardo and Enrique, they're all, they all left. And uh, they were glad to go because their lives were very hard with, you know, their constant companions being the state security and all of that. And this history, all by itself, something that is completely unknown. And if I want people to take anything away from this, that's my favorite. That's the one I love. But the whole treatment of Cuba, the revolution, the unfolding of the regime, the way in which things happened, this has not been written. And again, this is the advantage of what I call, it's, it's, it's a very standard term, primary history, history that comes from the mouths of the people who either created that history themselves or witnessed it. And I will say this, I'll make another immodest claim for this book. If I, I, It was kind of a heavy responsibility for me. If I had not written this book, this facts, these truths, if I, if I want to use a very big word, would not be known. They would not be known. These stories would have died with the people who lived them. And I was not prepared to have that happen. Indeed, I had plenty of trouble trying to, I have already had plenty of trouble trying to publish this material, but now it's being published. I just want to leave potential readers with an interesting quote at the very beginning of the book that I found interesting. It's a Spanish proverb that says, a veces perdiendo se gana, which roughly mm -hmm. translates to sometimes you lose in order to win. Is this the summary of the Rivero family story? I think it is, because the, the, the Rivero family would be seen in most eyes. Well, they lost. They were defeated. They were scattered. They lost their money. They lost their position. Uh, the parents came to the United States. Very striking anecdote in the book. At the, at the end of 1958, Riverito, the, the head of the family, who is a journalist and has covered presidential politics in Cuba for 25 years, and he's conversing with presidents. He knew Batista personally. Mm -hmm. He knew the, the autentico presidents, Carlos Prio. He loved Carlos Prio, the president before Batista. Ramon Grau San Martín was another one. And he knew a whole line of presidents from the 1930s to the 19, late 1950s. And suddenly, Castro comes to power, and what does he do? He disassembles the free press. Cuba had a vibrant free press 
at the beginning of 1959. By the end of 1959, or certainly the end of 1960, nothing. There is only, uh, well, what are the papers called at that time? Revolucion, which is the newspaper of the 26th of July, Castro's newspaper, and the, the newspaper Oi, meaning today. That's the uh, newspaper of the Communist Party. So you have this huge kind of, I mean, nine papers in the evening and six papers in the morning like that and magazines and everything else, a thriving free press. And all of that is gone in a year or two. And these two stupid propaganda papers are the only things that Cubans can read. And so Riverito and his wife leave the United States. And at the end of 1959, one year after being, you know, one of Cuba's top reporters, he's working as a busboy. He's carrying trays in the restaurant of a Washington hotel. He's an immigrant. He, can, he cannot really speak English very well. Instantly, he's a proletarian. No problems as far as he's concerned. He's, it's, he has to live. So he just he takes the work and he does the work. And nonetheless, history would look at all of these people, all four of them, father, mother, and the two sons, and consider they're losers. They didn't prosper under Fidel Castro when they came to the United States. People didn't hear about them. But wow, have they accomplished something. Have, they, are, they are my heroes in history because they've done something that very few people do. They confront this totalitarian beast and they preserve their dignity and their individualism and their liberty and their love for each other. And they all lived full lives. And their, their basic attitude in line with everything that is precious to a free person, they will not take away who I am. And they exemplify that. And I really wanted to capture that and, and pass that lesson on to other people who didn't have the privilege, as I did, of knowing, knowing this family intimately through the two brothers. Well, this is a great hook for readers. So where can people find your book? Well, a number of things. Firstly, the Impunity Observer, which is a website Guatemala-based concerning United States and Latin America. This is a great website. I'm, I'm a contributing editor. Uh, I work with the Impunity Observer. So the Impunity Observer will be running excerpts of this book really amounting to about a third of the book in August and September, and maybe a little bit of October too. In the Impunity Observer is the information you need to find the entire book. That's right, folks. You just go to impunityobserver.com, and then you'll see there on the front page a link to the book and the link to the excerpts and to where you can buy the book if you're interested. David, thank you so much for your time today and for speaking with us. Not at all, Danielle. Thank you.